delight to be with you again in this moment and uh, to be here at a time when you've said your goodbyes to a great lady of God, Sister Donna Bartlett. I uh, knew Sister Donna to be a wise and a witty and a strong woman, but more than that, a godly woman. Uh, I think the secret to her godliness was that somehow she was able, and it's a rare quality when you think about it, but she was able to combine, to combine truth and grace. And that's something we're all trying to do. You know, when Jesus was there with the lady caught in the act of adultery, he, he said, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. And uh, I've always thought if a church could get both of those things balanced right, it, it would have something. I, I'm not here to condemn you, but I'm here to, t I'm here to give you the truth. And I think Sister Donna was able to do that. I didn't know her well growing up. And the first conversation I think that I had with her that I recall was I was at the pastor's house and we were watching. And you'd have to understand, you'd only have to be a Yankee fan to understand what I'm about to say. But we were watching the seventh game of the 2001 World Series, The Night the Dynasty Died. Bloop single over Derek Jeter's head. Two outs in the ninth. Arizona won two to one. But anyway, she came in with sandwiches, and she uh, she gave me a sandwich. And uh, nonchalantly, I said, well, thank you. I'll pay you back sometime. And she said, no, you won't. No, you won't. And uh, what she was saying is, don't sit in my chair and lie to me. I gave you a sandwich. You're not going to pay me back. There's never going to be a moment where you buy me a sandwich. Don't say that. And uh, so I was afraid of her for a while because it's like, oh, she'll tell you the truth. And, uh, but I've, I've come to, uh, and I came to love her and uh, respect her greatly. And I know you'll miss her, and I'll miss seeing her. And the shock still hasn't worn off from not seeing her yet. Uh, but uh, she's going to be greatly, greatly missed. One of the uh, great uh, questions I think everyone has, and one of the questions that's common to humanity, is what do you do when uh, life crashes in on you? When life really does cave in, how am I supposed to respond to that? I I've thought this, how I might, uh, as a pastor, sit and talk with Job if I had been called there as he grieved the loss of, of his children, the loss of his possessions, and, and the, the complete travesty of his life in that moment. What do you say to a person like that? When they look at you and say, what am I supposed to do tomorrow when I get up? I don't know that I would have had the answer for Job. And yet, it's common in life that life does at least have its ups and downs. Uh, you don't always keep your money. Sometimes the business fails. Sometimes the relationship breaks up, and it doesn't matter how much time and energy you put into it. They walk in and say, I've fallen in love with somebody else, and I'm leaving. Uh, sometimes your family falls apart in spite of the fact that as best you could, you raised your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We do sit in doctor's offices, and we do hear, words that take our breaths away. We do stand at the gravesides and say goodbye to people that we don't understand how it happened and we don't know that they, we can live without them in and of ourselves. Life does seem to 
have those moments when it caves in. It seems like hell invades our life. <clears throat> and it's good to know, uh, I guess, that we aren't the only ones going through those times and troubles. It's common to all of us. All of us face those issues. All of us have the rain that falls into our lives. The just and the unjust face the storms. And one person who did face storms and I think wrote to you and I <clears throat> about how we might behave when our times come is the psalmist in the third, 131st Psalm. This is the third shortest psalm, but don't necessarily assume that would make it a short sermon. In verse 1, the psalmist says, Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. Neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord, from this time forth and forever. And I think there ought to be an amen there, although he didn't put one. Now, it's helpful to, to know that this was written by King David. And we don't know when King David wrote this passage. And it could have been in the second half of his life at some point. The first half of David's life is, is fairly well known if you grew up and went to Sunday school as a kid. We know that he was the youngest son of many sons and perhaps the smallest, uh, surely the surely the most dishonored and disrespected of the boys. We know that that day came, perhaps when he was 15 or 16 or 17, when the hopes of the nation rested on him and he stood up and faced Goliath, the giant who was terrorizing the people, and with a sling and a rock and the power of God, he slayed the giant and won the victory that day. We know that after that he received the reward of the king's daughter in marriage, Michal, and so he became a prince of the realm. We know that when he would ride through the villages, the girls would sing about him and proclaim his name. David has killed his 10,000. But we also know that the frown of the king quickly came upon him, turning from a smile. And for seven or 13 years, seven to 13 years, we don't know, depending on the timeline, he was public enemy number one, pursued by a jealous and envious king. So we know that he went from cave to cave, and perhaps David wrote the psalm at this point. But we also know that he became king. Saul died, his kingdom was established, and he conquered his enemies north, south, east, and west, and secured his kingdom and reigned unopposed in Jerusalem until that day when sitting on his palace porch, he saw the woman Bathsheba bathing and committed adultery with her, brought her to him, and then conspired to have her husband killed. From that point on, David's story ends up a bit of a hurricane in his life. From that point on, his life is a bit of a hurricane. Perhaps I should say, the child that is conceived in that adulterous relationship is born, but then dies. The Lord says to David, 
you can't have the child. You can come to the child, but you can't have the child. You can imagine David crying out to the Lord in that moment, saying, Lord, take me. I'm the one who sinned. I'm the one who violated your law. Don't punish the child because of me. Of course, I think the Lord was saying, David, I'm not punishing the child. I'm letting it live in heaven its whole life. David doesn't see that. But David is at that low moment. I I don't know what it's like to hold a dying child, and I, I sure don't know what it's like to know the child is dying because of what you did. Then a few months or maybe a year or two later, his son Amnon, who uh, had an infatuation with his half-sister Tamar, uh, conspired to seduce her. And uh, he pressured her, but she resisted. And then one day he faked an illness and laid in bed and asked her to bring him soup. And when she came into his room with the soup, he violently raped her and then threw her aside like she was a piece of trash. And so that violence came into David's house. Absalom, Tamar's full brother, hears about this. Tamar runs to Absalom. Why she doesn't run to David's not certain. Perhaps David knew, but it's not recorded. But she goes to her brother. And her brother says, I'll take care of it. Tamar, I'll get vengeance for you and for me. And Absalom laid in wait. He found his time a few months later, and he killed Amnon. And David was willing to forgive him because Absalom was the apple of David's eye. And David wanted to reconcile, and so he brought him back into the palace. What David did not know, though, was that as much As Absalom hated Amnon, he hated David with equal fire. He wanted to get vengeance on David. So David would judge the people. He he was a Supreme Court judge, not only the king. And Absalom would sit outside the courtroom. And whoever lost, Absalom would go to them and say, you know, if I had been king, I would have ruled on your side. A great injustice has been done to you by my father. Over a period of time, Absalom won the hearts of the people. He was handsome, he was winsome, he was conspiring. The day came when he had the majority of the nation on his side and he rose up and drove his father out of the palace, out of the city with a few loyal men into the wilderness. When he did that, he went into the palace, did unspeakable things to the wives that David had left behind. David was with Bathsheba alone in the wilderness. David, heartbroken, civil war imminent, tells his soldiers, don't kill Absalom. Whatever you do, there's going to be a fight, but save Absalom. There's still hope for him. His soldiers, perhaps knowing better, trapped Absalom and slayed him, and so the body is brought to David, and you have that great passage where David is saying, oh, Absalom, oh, Absalom, I wish it had been me that died and not you. Well, you get the story. Last part of David's life is one wave of hellish invasion after another. There was another rebellion against him, a second rebellion. 
I don't know when David wrote this passage, but it seems to me like it's David telling you and I how to live in those kinds of moments. If I can take these three verses and make three points out of them, I think the first thing that David then is saying is, when life caves in on you, when it seems like hell invades your life, don't ask why. Don't look at God and say, why are you letting this happen to me? How could you let this happen to me after all I've done for you? He says, Lord, my heart is not haughty. I'm not proud, Lord. No, my eye is lofty. Neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Now that's interesting because David was a genius. I mean, David isn't saying, I don't think that I can figure out why. David's saying, I don't go searching for why. I mean, David is the greatest king in the history of his nation. He's the greatest poet in the history of his nation. He's the greatest musician in the history of his nation. He's the greatest general in the history of his nation. If he was living today, we would beg him to be our president. If, and how many kings... How many sovereigns have been both the greatest leader and the greatest musician of their nation? The answer is none. He was a once in a hundred year gener or once in a hundred year uh, genius. This massive IQ. If people are reading what we write three thousand years from now, if the world should continue, that means we're geniuses. Here's David. This great, mighty genius of a man who knows God. Not only is he all of this, but he's a great theologian. He's and he says, I don't think about stuff. I don't think about things that are too big for me. I don't go into that stuff. I don't sit around and ask why. I don't sit around and try to figure out the mysteries of the world. It's a waste of time. I don't do it. I, I'm not proud in that way. I, I don't assume that I can know why this is happening. I don't allow my mind to go there. I don't think about things that are too haughty for me. I remember when I was in college and seminary, I, I would buy those books on why do bad things happen to good people. And I thought someday somebody will come into my office and ask me why this happened, and I'll be able to tell them. I read about all the philosophy and all the theology, about sin entering the world and the effects of sin, and about human freedom and about the omnipotence and omniscience of God and all of those things. You know what? They don't seem to help that much when you're there. Because the truth of the matter is, is that you probably won't know. Here's Job. Poor Job. And he could have never guessed what was happening. Job could have said, I know that sin entered the world, and this is the impact of sin, and I know there's a devil, and... Uh, 
I know that there's human freedom, and I know a thing or two about God, but he would have never guessed that God and Satan had a conversation, and there was a heavenly wager made, so to speak, and he was at the center of the wager, and in a crowd that he could not see, an unseen crowd, were all the angels and all the demons looking at him to see if a man could really have faith and not deny God in the midst of that circumstance. I don't know why you're going through what you're going through either. And you can guess, and you can read the book, and you can know the theology, but it's not really bad yet until your theology won't work. When it gets bad enough, your theology doesn't work and your philosophy doesn't work. All you can do is say, it's too big for me. Too great for me. I don't understand it. Again, David is saying, I don't think about things that are too haughty for me. You want to understand how I went through the loss of at least two children and the disaster in my household and the loss of my kingdom for a time? You want to understand how I got through that? I didn't sit around asking why. Martin Luther, the great uh, theologian, said that if you want to get anywhere with God, you have to crucify why. You have to crucify why. But, David says, although I don't meditate and try to consider and answer questions that are too great for me, I do allow God to comfort me. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes uh, lofty. Neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. But surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a winged child with his mother, like a winged child is my soul within me. A winged child is a child that's no longer nursing, but really isn't doing... uh, It really hasn't come into an age where it's able to function on its own. Uh, Samuel, my son turned five, he's a weaned child. A weaned child. He's not contributing to the household income yet. He's a weaned, weaned child. Still a child, but he's weaned. What's interesting about a child is that when they fall down or when they get hurt, they don't ask why, they just want to sit in mama's lap. Mama, not so much daddy, but mama's lap. And uh, they're on to something there. I don't ask why I I had the wreck. Uh, I guess there's a reason why. But when when I'm hurting, I don't ask why. I just want to sit in mama's lap. It seems like that's what then David is saying. He says, I don't ask why, but I do allow God to comfort me. I, I don't try to figure out the deep answers, but I do pray. I do worship. I do draw near to God. I do go to the rock that's higher than me. I do cast all my cares on him. I do sit at his feet like Mary. I do allow him to embrace me like a shepherd embraces a a lamb that's gone astray. I do draw near to him. That's important. That's important for you and I. A lot of people do it just the opposite of David. When life really kicks them in the teeth, they, uh, they ask, why? How could this happen? And then they distance themselves from God. 
and the bitterness. How in the world could God allow that to be taken from me? Then the coldness comes and they don't worship and start to be less frequent in the house of God and they're not meditating, communing with him and their prayer life goes dry. David says, I do it just the opposite. I don't ask why, but I do draw near. I am like a child in that way. And you and I need to learn that discipline. I don't know if it's innate inside of me or inside of many people to calm my spirit and just to allow God to comfort me, just to sit in his lap, just to allow him to embrace me, just quietly like a child with a skinny, although my pain's much more than a skinny, but, but just to sit in the lap of my heavenly father, so to speak. Karl Barth was... Um, maybe the greatest theologian in the 20th century. If you read his Wikipedia page, it says that he was perhaps the greatest theologian in the 20th century. That's the first line of his Wikipedia page. And he was a great German thinker and uh, single-handedly stood against enlightenment that came up in the church in the, in the, uh, in the 1920s where uh, people were questioning the authority of the Word of God at the highest levels of academia. And it was Karl Barth, this great intellect, who stood and opposed the other great intellects who were questioning the word of God. And he won the day. Single-handedly stopped that wave at, at that time, although the wave seems to have overwhelmed us in our day. Karl Barth was sitting in a college seminary among many professors, and they said, what do you think is the most profound truth in Scripture? And he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Great intellect. Great intellect. But he had discovered, I think, what David discovered, and that is, as smart as you are, when the storm hits, just get close to Jesus. Be a child. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me. And then David says here, and I hope. I crucify why. I do draw near. It's the focus to draw near to the Father. And as I draw near, I put all my hope in God, and we put our hope in Jesus Christ. He said, O Lord, or O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. And when you and I do draw near, we find springs of hope within us. Why? Because we know his past. We can hope because we know what he's done in the future. I can see David sitting there saying, you know what? I know about Job, and I know what I've gone through, but Job got double for his trouble. Job got out of it. And you think about Jacob, and Jacob got ran out of the nation. He got exiled, but he found promise where he was at. He found Rachel. He found that he lived again, even though he was driven out of his country with a shirt on his back. 
And I know about Brother Joseph who was in the cave and he thought his life was finished and then he was sold into slavery. And if it wasn't finished in the cave, it was certainly finished in slavery. But he came out. You and I can say, well, we know about Daniel too, man. He came out of the lion's den and his buddies came out of the fiery furnace and Esther thought that she was finished, but all she did was save the nation. We know that there are people that have been faced with all the powers of hell and they've come through and God has seen them and he's delivered from the lion's den and he's delivered from the well's belly and he's delivered from tombs and, and places that people were locked into. Surely he can deliver me. Surely I can hope in the Lord. Surely I can put my trust in the deliverer of all these other people. And he's capable, right? He's able to meet my needs. He owns the cattle on the thousand hills. He owns the hills. He owns the land or the sky above the hills. He owns the stars in the sky above the hills. He owns the sun in the, above the stars in the sky and the hill. He owns all that. Meet my need. And he's able to remove all the obstacles. We're looking at a God who takes guys like Nebuchadnezzar and guys like Napoleon and he gives them the abilities to conquer half the world. And just when they're sitting on their throne and they think, no one can ever stop me. He casts them down and he sends them in the exile. Kind of God we serve. There ain't any obstacle too big for him. He's able to deliver. He's able to bring us out. He still heals bodies. He still saves people. He still infills people. He still enables people to live the life that they didn't think they could live. He still delivers from drugs. He still raises people who feel like they're dry bones. He's able to do that. So David, I think, looks at this situation and he says, you know what? I can't, I, I, I can't dwell with things that can't be answered. It's too lofty for me. I, I don't think he's saying, you know, I'm just stupid. He's not dumb. Saying it's a waste of my time to deal with those issues. But I will draw near to God. And I will hope. I won't give in to pessimism. I won't stop believing. I serve a risen Savior, Jesus Christ, and that means I'm not quitting. Going forward, stand with me. You'll encourage me to quit. <clears throat> I know there's food waiting for you. They took the clock down. It sounds just like something Pastor Tony would do. Surprised he didn't do it 30 years ago, though. I read a story, and you might have heard this, about the little boy who... Uh, Went into this old uh, country store. Don't stop me if you've heard it. Just be nice about it. But um, goes into the old country store. His clothes are dirty. His face is dirty. He doesn't have any shoes on. His feet are dirty. Goes up there to the counter, and the, uh, he's looking at the candy, you know. Big barrel of candy there beside the counter. And the guy looks at him and feels sorry for him and says, Kid, get you a handful of candy. The kid just stands there and stares at him. I said, no, no, seriously, it don't cost you anything. 
just get what you want, kid. And the kid just stands there and stares. The guy says, listen, kid, come here, come here. And, and the owner picks up two handfuls of candy and says, here, kid. And the kid's got to sort of take his shirt and cradle it because there's so much candy. And says, thank you, sir. And, and then he walks out. And the, the guy says, listen, kid, why didn't, why, did, why didn't you get the candy when I told you to get the candy? And, and the kid says, well, because your hands are bigger than mine. Well, God's hands are bigger than mine. They're bigger than yours. There's a mighty hand of God loose in the universe. It's a hand of provision. It's a hand of power. It's a hand of protection. And we're weak, but he's strong. Our hands are many ways unable. But his hands are able to meet our needs today. Whatever your need is, I want to invite you to come. There might be somebody here who's away from the Lord today. There's one who can help you. There's one who can deliver you. Sometimes you can feel bound by sin and you can say, I'll never get free. No, there's a mighty hand who can deliver you. There's one who can calm the storms. There's one who can resurrect the dead. Surely if he can resurrect the dead, he can resurrect you one who can help you today don't get tied up in why but draw near to the one who can put hope into your spirit today father we thank you for those who stand here and we thank you lord that they've come to worship you there's something inside of them that said uh this morning i've i've got to i've got to draw near I've, i've got to go to church it's right that i should do that But I pray, Lord, that they haven't just heard singing and a passage read and a sermon, but that in this moment they have felt your presence. And for those who are hurting and for those who can look at the life of David and say, you know what, I I think I know a little bit about what he went through. In fact, I'm going through it now. I pray that you would speak hope into their life. Life isn't finished until you say it's finished. Hope isn't gone until you're gone. But you said that you would remain until the end. So Lord, we trust in you today. Restore some dry bones. Lift some spirits. Break some bonds, we pray, to the glory of Jesus Christ. And it's his wonderful and precious name we pray this. Amen. So if you need the Lord, you come today, all right?